Previously on Steambox Versus, Bruce Leroy, the last dragon, shared the glow. The Iron Sheep broke backs and made us humble. Michio Kaku showed us how to find dark matter. Samus and Megarad led a rap battle for the ages, and we plunged into virtual reality in Ready Player One. Will Steambox make it back to Ghibli in Japan? Will the Boston Celtics dunk on us? Will the Dragon Ball Z narrator ever join the crew? Stay tuned and find out on Steambox Versus. Hello world, we are back from Japan. This is another Steambox Versus podcast. Today, we are with the Warriors from Central Falls. Warriors from Central Falls, please say what's up to the world. What? What's up? Hey, uh, <laughs> well, I, don't kill Lillian. I keep telling you guys not to kill Lillian. Uh, you rocked her back already. Uh, Lillian Birch is with us. Uh, and a conversation I just had offline with some of the people in this room is uh, some of our students at here and especially at another school were interested in remarks made by Kanye West and Kyrie Irving directly and indirectly. Uh, by sharing this video, Hebrews to Negroes. Uh, and a lot of what they're talking about is hurtful and hateful towards the Jewish community. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a member of the Jewish community come on and talk about their experience. Uh, another thing that they had mentioned was that the Holocaust was not a real thing, which I found interesting because uh, I studied in school and I studied a lot about the Holocaust. We hear about the Holocaust a lot. We might have whataboutism, I know that I say, hey, my people were, uh, my, there was genocide performed on my people too, as Native Americans and as Tainos, and many of you are, are Latino Caribbean. And uh, uh, one of my black students said today, uh, you know, what about the genocide on my end? What I'm saying is, if we're not going to deny yours, if we're not going to deny yours, then why would uh, Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, and so many other prominent figures in our lives be denying the Holocaust. So is it real? We're going to find out today. This was a thing that came up in our award-winning podcast here at Highland Charter School. But first, I want to introduce the students and staff from Highlander Charter School. Students and staff from Highlander, please say what's up to the world. What's up? We've got Lillian Birch with us. Lillian, hello. Hello. And we're going to stray from our format a little bit today. I can't even do justice to Lillian. So I'm going to uh, hand it over to Giovanna, who is going to please give an introduction of Lillian. And then Lillian, I'm going to ask you to uh, please take over and, and educate us on some of those experiences. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Giovanna Wiseman, um, and I work at the Sandra Bornstein Holocaust Education Center in Providence. Um, it's an honor to be here, and thanks to your school and Steambox for having us. Um, so before I introduce Lillian, I would just like to talk a little bit about the mission of our center. Um, so we were founded 35 years ago by Holocaust survivors who, after their experiences, moved to the Rhode Island area. And after what they went through, it was their dream to see a Holocaust center founded in order to educate the future generations and to inspire them to be upstanding citizens. I ask that you listen respectfully, but I also very much encourage you to ask questions when you're given the opportunity. Um, I understand it can feel really uncomfortable and awkward to talk about this topic. It's, it's not an easy topic to cover. I certainly felt that way when I first started working at the center. Um, 
But it's also important to keep in mind that it's not easy for survivors and children of survivors to stand up in a room of strangers and talk about their pain. But they do that in order to inform us and to help us understand the importance of speaking out in the face of injustice. So let's honor the work that they do by engaging with intention. Um, so without further ado, please welcome Lillian Birch. Thank you. So the way I'd like to do it is talk about my mother first, tell you a little bit about her childhood, and then have her grow up and into what happened to her. Then I'll talk about my dad. Then I'll bring them together so they can get married and have me. And then we'll all try to come to the United States. And then at that point, be happy to answer any questions. So first I'd like to introduce the cast of characters and I'll pass these around if you can't see. This here is my mother. Her name was Anka. This is her oldest sister, whose name was Ruja. And this is Ruja's daughter, Sesha. And they're in the story, which is why I bring this picture. So I'll get this one going this way. This one also has my dad, whose name was Yannick. And down here is one of only two pictures I have of my dad's family. I have none of my grandfather on that side. But that's my grandmother, Layla, for whom I am named. Uh, Jewish custom is to name a child after uh, ancestor, somebody who's passed away. So Lillian, Layla, I'm named for her. And my father is the little toddler on the lap, so he had older brothers and sisters. So I'll let that one go that way. <clears throat> These are my maternal grandparents, my mother's folks. My grandmother's name was Francesca, and my grandfather's name was Ignazi. So I let that go there. And can I ask you? Uh, I know you didn't want to be interrupted, and I, I apologize. Um, for our audience at home, w do you have some of these digital? And might I be able to share, you know, one of those family photos as the cover for this podcast, and that way our audience can see. Okay, well, I can make that happen. Sure, or I can take a photo if you're if you're okay with it. Um, okay, and this is one more. This is a picture of my mother and father and some unknown lady whose name I never got. Missed it. So my mother was born in Krakow, Poland, in 1918, which is a long time ago. But the truth is, in all the important ways, people don't change. We love, we hate, we get angry, we get scared. All the emotions are there, no matter when a person lived. So my mother was pretty much a regular kid. She liked outdoor sports. So she liked to ski and go mountain climbing. Uh, her parents owned a little pharmaceutical company that made drugs, so there was enough money for her to be able to do those things. She was one of three girls and four boys. They lived in a five-room apartment, 
and her childhood was perfectly fine. But in Poland, anti-Semitism kind of came in waves. Things would be going along okay for a while, and then they wouldn't. And there would be what are called pogroms, where men from the little villages on the outskirts of Krakow would get liquored up, come into town, beat up a couple Jews, burn a few houses down, have themselves a fine old time. And then it would pass for a while. And that is one of the reasons why Jewish people did not all leave Europe right away. They never anticipated the Holocaust being as horrible as it was. They just thought it would be a bigger program. So by the time my mother got to high school age, uh, things were heating up a little bit in terms of anti-Semitic acts. And my grandparents sent her to a parochial high school, so to a Jewish school. And she was a pretty good student. She was terrible in math, which is a little strange for me because I ended up being a math teacher in Providence at Mount Pleasant. She had to pass a test one day in class where she had to write a problem on the board, and her older brother snuck out of his class and came over to hers and from the doorway was trying to tell her what to do. She liked boys. She would occasionally goof up and make dates with two guys for the same day. And they'd both show up and she'd sneak out one door with the chosen one for the evening and her mother would be trying to keep the other one from seeing her. In high school, she did one thing that turned out to be amazingly important later on. A new girl came to the school who came on a scholarship. Her name was Marika. And Marika was bullied by the other girls. I'm not sure if it was because she couldn't compete in terms of clothes or if she just had a crummy personality. But my mom walked into the building one day and a group of girls had Marika in a circle and they were pushing her back and forth and not letting her out. And my mom put a stop to it. So one, I like to tell this story because it's nice that my mom stood up to bullies. But two, as I said, remember that name because it's going to be extremely important. Well, when she graduated from high school, she would have liked to go to medical school and become a doctor. But in Poland, she had two major strikes against her. One, she was Jewish. Jews were not allowed in any of the medical schools. And two, she was a woman and they were not allowed in either. So she did the next best thing and she became a surgical nurse. And then she met a nice young man named Avram, and they dated and got married. Not my dad, first husband. And for a while, things were okay. But then in September of 1942, 
Germany invaded Poland, and all of Poland fell in 30 days. Things started off slowly and then got very bad. So at first, all Jews had to wear a yellow Star of David on their clothing. It was called a Mogan David, Hebrew for Star of David. And then there were curfews. Jews weren't allowed out after dark. And then jobs were taken away from Jews. They weren't allowed to be in certain professions. And then, of course, people started getting taken to concentration camps. There was an incredible number of camps. My mother's family did okay for a while because my grandparents, Francesca and Ignazi, took all the savings they had and they did a, two or three different things with it. The first thing they did was they bought false identity papers saying that the, each family member was Christian. And that allowed them to travel a little more freely around the city. And then they took the bulk of their cash and they converted it into diamonds. And every member of the family sewed diamonds into the lining of their clothes so that if they needed something for a bribe, they could offer a diamond. And the other thing they did was they insisted that the whole family break up into several different hiding places because my grandparents feared that if they were all together and caught and arrested all together, the entire family would be wiped out in one fell swoop. So that allowed them to do okay for a while. But then a whole bunch of bad things happened. The first one was that my mother's husband, Avram, was arrested and sent to Auschwitz, one of the most notorious of the camps, and killed. So my mom, Anka, moved in with her sister, Ruzha, that was in the picture you saw, Ruzha's husband, Max, and four-year-old daughter, Zesh. The second thing that happened was that my grandfather heard that an orphanage outside of town didn't have water. And my grandparents were very charitable people. My mother's only complaint about her childhood was that she bought a new pair of boots for the winter, and when she got home, her mother had given them away to a poor family she'd heard of that didn't have shoes. So he couldn't drive his car anymore because there was no petrol or gas, and so he found a horse and wagon and got a barrel of water and he was driving to the orphanage when he was spotted by German soldiers, shot and killed. So when the family found out, they all gathered at my grandma's home, her apartment, to mourn. At night, when my mom was finally leaving, 
there was gunfire in the streets. My grandma ran out thinking my mother had been shot and instead was killed right in front of my mother. And the next bad thing that happened was that uh, my mother had a very good friend who was running an orphanage. By now, lots of people have been arrested and taken away, and the kids just left to rot, and there were a lot of orphanages. And she heard that German soldiers, Nazis, were coming to the orphanage and that they did terrible things to children. They would take babies or little toddlers and drop them on the ground to see if they bounced or throw them up against walls. They were very cruel. And she felt that she could not allow that to happen to her little folks. And so somehow she was able to get hold of a box of poisoned chocolate and she gave each and every one a chocolate. And when they fell asleep and died, then she took the last one for herself. Now, my mother is still okay with my aunt and uncle and cousin, but they know they could be arrested at any moment. And they're worried about Sesha, who is four years old. So think about a brother, a sister, a neighbor, some little kid down here. And so they were able to find a good Christian family who agreed to take her in if there was a need. The only problem was this family lived on the other side of Krakow. Krakow is a city about the size of Providence. So every day they would practice with Sesha to take the bus. So she would get the right amount of money out. She would lead the way to the bus stop. She would pick the right bus to get on. Remember, she's four. The right stop to get off. And then she would lead the way to the safe house. And they did this just about every day. Well, one day it did come to pass and they were all arrested. My mother found out after the war that it was actually a friend who turned her in to save his own skin. So they were put in a cart and they were heading for the train station to go to Auschwitz, a distance of about 60 kilometers. But the man who was driving the cart happened to know my Aunt Ruzha just a little bit and he looked down at my cousin Sesha and he said, no, the little one will not go. And he picked her up and he put her down in the street and he took off. So now she's four years old and she is totally alone in the work. But she does what she's been taught. She goes back in the house, she gets the money, she takes the bus, and she makes her way to the safe house and begs them to take her in, which they do. Now, my little family group are put on a cattle car. It is crowded. 
to the max. It's a three-day journey to do less than 60 miles. There is no food. There is no water. There are no bathrooms. And everyone is so scared. Just so scared. Well, people die during the journey, particularly the elderly and the frail. And there's no place to even lay the bodies down. So the dead people sway back and forth amongst the living. So they get to Auschwitz, and the first thing that you see is the arch over the gates that says, Arbeit macht frei. Work sends, makes you free. These are the train tracks leading to Auschwitz and Birkenau, the sister camp. And these are what the barracks looked like in Auschwitz. They used to be military barracks. So they get to Auschwitz, and there's a selection process. You are either put in the line to live or the line to die. They are put in the line to die. This means that they were slowly being marched to the gas chamber. The gas chamber is a very, very large room. I was there in 2010 on the March of the Living. Very high ceilings and what look like shower heads in the ceiling. And the people, bless you, and the people were told that they were to take a shower after their journey to clean up. They didn't want to tell the people the truth and have them panic. What really happened was when they were stuffed full enough in this large room, the doors were locked and the shower heads were turned on releasing Cyclone B gas. And the people died a slow and very painful and then Jewish prisoners called Sonderkommandos would take the bodies, go through them, looking for any remaining valuables the people had, watches, wedding rings, gold teeth. And then they would take them to the crematoria, and they would be cremated and their ashes disposed of. So that was supposed to be my little family's fate. But as they were walking towards that fate, they passed a table where a woman was working. She was recording names. She was passing out the striped pajamas that the prisoners had to wear. It was Marika from high school. And she said, because this had been six or seven years, it had been a while since they had seen each other. She said, Mar Marika said, Anka, is that you? You were the only person who was kind to me in high school, and I will not let you die. And so she took my mother's arm, and she put, pulled her into the line for the living. And my mom grabbed my Aunt Russia, and my Aunt Russia grabbed my Uncle Max. And the three of them were saved because of that act of kindness in high school. Things got very bad right after that. There was an evil doctor at the camp, Dr. Joseph 
Mengele. And he had two categories of people that he liked to do experiments on. The first was twins. So he would look at the people getting off the train looking for twins. And he had this little gizmo that gave electric shocks. And he would attach a pair of twins to this gizmo and start shocking one of them. And it would get worse and worse. The shock would get stronger and stronger. When the person couldn't stand the pain anymore, the only thing they could do was transfer it to their twin. So he was interested to see how much pain a person could stand before giving that pain to a loved one. And the other group were young Jewish women of childbearing age. He figured that if he could find a way to sterilize young Jewish women so they couldn't have children, eventually there would be no more Jews, and wouldn't that be great? And that's where my mother fell prey. She was picked to be one of those women. So she was put in a barracks with about 200 other women. They were experimented on. They were given drugs they had to take. They were given injections, all in an attempt to find the magic thing that would sterilize them. And as a matter of fact, she was told after the war that she would never, ever be able to have children. She slept in barracks like, but they slept four across, three rows high. They were given one meal a day. It was a watery bowl of soup. Every once in a great while, they were given a crust of bread. And even less often, they were given a little pat of butter to put on the bread. My mother went from about 120 pounds to 80 pounds during her time at Auschwitz. She was about 5'4". There were endless roll calls. Why? One, to make sure they had everybody present to take attendance, but also because the guards were cruel and they could abuse these poor, starving, wretched people. And they liked to do that. My very firm belief is they were chosen for their qualities of brutality. If you moved when you were in line, you swayed back and forth because you were weak with hunger or you were sick, Typhoid fever was rampant in the camp because there was no sanitation facilities. That was a good excuse for one of them to beat you up. So one day my mother swayed in line and a guard threw a five-gallon can of paint at her, hitting her in the neck. And another time, uh, it was the middle of winter, very cold day, and the guard made her take off all her clothing and he tied her up to a pole outside and left her there for 24 hours. They were so incredibly cruel. They did not see these prisoners as human beings. My mother worked 12 hours a day. She was marched to a munitions factory where she made bombs for the German art. So when she started telling me what had happened to her in little bit by little bit, I asked her what made her survive. Why would you cling to life when you're living in hell? 
And she said the only people who survived were the ones who had hope. Everyone else died as quickly as they could. They would stop eating even the little bit of food. The entire camp not only had barbed wire around it, but it was electrified. So they would throw themselves on the electrified barbed wire to die a quick death. So my next question was, well, what on earth gave you hope? And she said a couple things happened to her that were by way of being miraculous. And the first one was this. One day, all the women in her building, now they're down to about 100 because they've been dying off, are made to go outside. They're each handed a shovel. And they're made to dig a shallow pit. When it's dug to the guard's satisfactions, they all stand with their back to the pit. The guards pick up their rifles and start shooting. When the dust settled, 99 of the 100 people were dead. One person survived, and that was my mother. And not only did she not die, she wasn't even wounded. She wasn't even grazed by a bullet going by, nothing. And the guards looked at each other and looked at her, and they were so surprised that they just let her go. And the second miracle happened towards the end of the war. Um, somehow... My mother had managed to hang on to her diamonds that had been sewn into her clothing. And you could, if you were very brave, you could sneak out to the barbed wire fence at night. And if you had money, you could buy food and medicine. And I am still upset and angry this many years later that the people from the town didn't just give these poor wretches everything they could. But no, they, they sold it. And she was using her diamonds to buy medicine and food. And with the medicine, she was trying to help people because remember, she had been a surgical nurse. Well, one day she saw a group of women in another part of the camp, Polish women prisoners, who looked even worse than she did. So she snuck out to the friends and with her last diamond, she was able to buy some loaves of bread. And she could carry about half of the bread in her skirt, holding up the edges of her skirt. And she was heading for these Polish women when the guards spotted her. And the guards had attacked dogs with them. They had taken people's family pets. They had taken my mother's German shepherd and trained them to be killers. So when they set the dogs loose on my mother, she was totally sure this was it and she was gonna die. But the second miracle happened. The dogs came really close to her and stopped. And not a single dog put a paw on her, nothing. And so when the guards caught up to the dogs, 
Again, the surprise factor worked in my mother's favor. And they looked at each other and they looked at the dogs and they, and they let her go. So she brought the bread over to the Polish ladies and then she went back and got the rest and did the same. Now near the end of the war, Germany knows it's gonna lose. And it knows that when other countries see what's happened and all the dead and terribly emaciated prisoners, public opinion would be so very much against Germany. So they decided to try to hide the evidence. So they had forced marches. Now this was in January, we're talking winter. Prisoners didn't have shoes. And they were forced to march from Auschwitz in Poland to Bergen-Belsen in Germany. And it is on that journey that one of my uncles who was in Auschwitz died. He just lay down and gave up and my mother begged him to keep going. She said, somebody in my barracks has a hidden radio. I know the war is gonna end soon. Hang on, please hang on, but, but he couldn't. So we have this warm, fuzzy feeling in my family that his job in life was to make sure she survived and then he could let go. So they were marched back to Auschwitz and on January 27th, 1945, which happens to have been my mother's birthday, 27th birthday, Auschwitz was liberated by the Russian army. And the first group of soldiers who appeared were a group of women motorcycle troops. And finally, the horror was over. My mother and my uncle and my aunt had all survived. My uncle had been buried alive by guards and my my mom and my aunt dug him up at night, so he had his own kind of miracle. And even as sickly as they were, my mother had tuberculosis by now, which was a fatal disease. They walked back to Krakow to try to find family. Now, this is way before cell phones and internet. So the only couple ways you could do it were you could put notices in newspapers saying, I'm alive and I'm in Poland, where are you? Or the Red Cross had set up stations where you could sign in and then other people could check for names. So they got back to Krakow. The very first thing they did was go looking for Tsesha, who was now six and the problem was potentially that a lot of these good families that took in kids especially real little ones came to love them very dearly and didn't want to give them back and the kids didn't really remember their parents i can tell you that my mother was in uh, a sanitarium a few years later to try to be cured of her TB uh, the year that I was two to three. And when she came back, I didn't know who she was. I had no idea. I said to my father in French, who is this lady? Which broke her heart. But it turned out just fine in this case, the family gave Sesha back and they were reunited. 
My mother got a job working for the Russians as a censor, reading the mail, and started to try to rebuild her life. So I'm going to switch gears and tell you my dad's story. Then I'll bring them together. So my dad also grew up in Poland, in Krakow. He came from a very, very poor family. There were five boys and one girl. They had a grocery store about the size of this table, and they lived in a couple of rooms above the store. So when he graduated from high school, he went into the Army, and he became a first lieutenant. He was one of the only Jews allowed to be an officer. And the only reason he was allowed was because his grandfather had fought with some great World War II, World War I general and got a big medal, and so they let my dad be a first lieutenant. So when my dad and his men, who were on horses, came up against the German army, they, of course, lost and very quickly. Against the might of the German army with the tanks and the planes and the well-equipped soldiers. And they retreated into Russia, where they were promptly arrested. And my dad and his brother, who was fighting with him, were offered Russian citizenship. But they said no, because they were afraid if they said yes, they would never be allowed back out of Russia. So, get ready, this is gross. The Russians decided to be a little more convincing. And so they buried my dad and my uncle up to his neck in animal poop. I warned you. And they still said no. So they were put on a train and sent to Siberia, all the way across Russia, and then north of the Arctic Circle to a labor camp, where their job was to chop trees down. It went like this. You chopped one tree down, you got one piece of bread. You chop two trees down, you got two pieces of bread, and so on. So at first, everyone is chopping like crazy because they're starving. And then my dad notices that the ones who are working the hardest are dying the fastest because they're breaking their backs. So he talks it over with his brother, and they decide that it is better to always be hungry than to die. And then after a while, they figure out they can sneak into the commander's garden at night and they steal a few potatoes and stuff and they manage to survive. After quite a long time, an officer, a Russian officer, comes from Moscow looking for tailors to make uniforms for the Russian army. My dad was not a tailor. I, I doubt that he'd ever sewed a button on his shirt to that point. But my uncle happened to be a tailor, and he said, it's a long trip back. I'll teach you on the train. So off they went. Can I just pause to acknowledge the elephant in the room? In case uh, our audience who, who listens to this podcast, uh, they know that Steambox is a goofy group. And uh, the last thing that I want, though, is for them to hear this story about your dad surviving through these horrors with this ice cream truck melody in the background, <laughs> thinking that we programmed it in 
in any way. That is an actual ice cream truck. You can open the window. I, I know it's warm in here. I appreciate you guys doing that. Let me give it just a second. Okay. Uh, I apologize. No problem. Okay. Um, so they're in Moscow. I remembered where I was. It's a miracle. And near the end of the war, Russia is ready to invade Poland. And so they take all these Polish prisoners and they decide to use them for cannon fodder. Why get their soldiers killed first? They'll throw all these Polish guys at them. So they took them up in planes. My dad had never been in an airplane. Put them in parachutes and pushed them out. And luckily my dad survived the landing. Didn't die of fright, which I think I would have. And they fight. And then he gets his own little miracle because he's shot in the back of the left leg. And the few surgeons that there were were so overworked, they were just chopping arms and legs off. But he came to and he begged the surgeon to save his leg. And so he did. Now the war ends and my dad is assigned to be the military administrator of a hospital in Krakow. So first thing he does is he goes back to try to find out what happened to his family. And the first thing he finds out is that his parents have been arrested. He goes to their home and all their furniture is there and curtains and all that kind of stuff, but they're gone. So he knows they didn't just move. And then he finds out that his one sister, also named Ruzha, like my mother's sister, had had a child who died at a year old, and she was so overcome with grief that she jumped off a balcony, killed herself. So these are heavy blows. So he's walking home from work, and a man stops him on the street and says, I would like to buy you a drink, and thank you for your service. And my dad says, no, no, that's okay. Thank you very much, but I'm good. But the man's very insistent. So they go into a bar, and the guy goes up to the bar and gets two shots of vodka with a national drink. And he holds his up and he says, I would like to thank the brave soldiers who fought for us. And thank God the Jews are dead. Well, for my dad, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. For the one and only time in his life, he started drinking. But now he meets my mother at a party. And for my dad, it is love at first sight. And I can tell you 50 years later, it was just as strong. For my mother, no. She looks at him and she says, First of all, I just went to hell and back. I'm not ready to date. Second, I'm dying. I have tuberculosis. And three, I would never date anybody who was a heavy drinker. Okay, that one's easy. He never was a drinker to start with. He gives that up. But how to impress this woman who is the one? Well, he takes an entire month's salary 
which another class that I figured out in current dollars is somewhere around $6,000. And with that, in post-war Poland, he is able to buy her one orange, and he presents it to her. And thank goodness, because my existence depended on it, the orange did the trick. And she thought to herself, anybody who would do this for me, this grand gesture, has got to be a good guy. So they dated for a while and got married about a year after the war. And then they started the process of trying to get out of Europe. Just about every single Jew who had survived. Six million were killed. I believe 80,000 survived, was trying to get out of Europe. So my mother had a brother who had gone to New York City before the war, and he was able to get my mother papers as far as Paris. But my dad didn't have anything. So he hitchhiked from Poland to France, hopped trains, and eventually got to Paris. And then they tried to get to the United States. And I was born in Paris while they were working on trying to get papers. So I am the third miracle. Because my mother had been told she would never be able to have kids. But she got pregnant, and then she had a miscarriage. But then about four months later, apparently, I started kicking. I think my theory is that I was twins and I was in there hanging on saying, you want to go, you go, but I'm staying. And so they had had me in 1948 so you can figure out how old I am. Now, in order to get a visa, you had to show that you were healthy. People who were in concentration camps were not healthy. You had to show an x-ray of your lungs. My mother had tuberculosis, a fatal lung disease. However, before things got really bad, my mother carried her baby sister to safety over the mountains and found her a place to stay on a farm. And she had her own mini miracle. Because one day, people, uh, German soldiers came to the farm. Now, my aunt was in the barn under the cows in a little compartment. The farmer's wife said to the soldiers, be my guest, come on. She takes him into the barn. She makes sure she stands right on the trap door where my aunt was and says, be my guest, look around and save their lives. And not only my mother's life, but her life and her husband's life as well because if they had been caught harboring Jews, they would have been killed just as well as, as my aunt. And it is my aunt's x-ray that my mother uses to get a visa. Now, my dad is perfectly healthy. He's very, very scrawny. He was never a big man anyhow, like maybe 5'5". Five, five. By this time, he's maybe 130 pounds. But he's healthy. But he can't get the visa. So he goes to the consulate, and he finds out that they're looking for a bride. So he doesn't have any money. So it's time for another grand gesture. Worked with the orange. So the, the guy's office had a big old heavy armchair 
and I cannot duplicate this, but my dad knelt down, grabbed the armchair in one hand, and stood up and lifted the armchair over his head and said to the consulate guy, am I healthy? And got his visa. We were at first we got visas to Canada, so we went to Montreal and we had some family there. But my mother couldn't tolerate the winters. So after she was cured of her tuberculosis, which took a whole year, um, we came to the United States on Thanksgiving Day in 1952. We came to Hartford, Connecticut, because you had to be sponsored. Somebody had to have a job waiting for you. And that was the only person they knew who could, could do that, so we ended up in Hartford. My mother was sick for many years after, but eventually she was in pretty good shape. And I'm happy to say they had a good 50 years together. And that's their story.